0: Good to see all of you this morning. Take your Bibles, open to the book of Haggai. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 2 this morning as we conclude our short series through this Old Testament minor prophet, Haggai. I want to speak to you for a few moments this morning about undeserved blessing. You know, the, the story of Israel, it really is the story of God's undeserved blessing. God chose a people to bless in Genesis chapter 12, Israel, and we see throughout Israel's history, God blessed them again and again and again. Undeservedly, just out of his free choice, God chooses a people and chooses to bless them. But Israel's story really is a story of a people who are blessed and then squander that blessing. And they rebel against God and they disobey God and they they cast off his blessing and they experience the consequences for that. And they deserve judgment for that. But then God, again, undeservedly pours out further blessing on his people, even though they don't deserve it. And this is a cycle that happens again and again in the life and the history of Israel. When we come to the book of Haggai, I'm reminded of one of our family's favorite stories that we enjoy reading together. And that's the Chronicles of Narnia. By C.S. Lewis. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is the first volume in that series. And uh, the story is about a group of children who uh, go beyond the wardroom door and uh, discover a, a, a world uh, called Narnia. And uh, there's a, a story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe about Lucy, one of the younger children, who goes through the door and discovers Narnia, and she's in there, and her older brother, Edmund, thinks that she has has been lost. And so he goes through the door after her. He's on a clear mission, and that mission is to go find his sister and bring her home. Somewhere along the way, as he's trying to, to find his sister, he meets an evil white witch, the queen of Narnia, and she offers him Turkish delight. Now, how many of you have ever eaten Turkish... Delight. It's not very delightful, I must say. I don't prefer it. But Edmund loved it. Turkish delight. He begins to eat it, and he, he can't get enough of it. He just begins to eat and eat and eat and forgets what he was there to do. He, he, he gets distracted from the mission to go find Lucy, and he just gets focused on this delectable treat, Turkish delight. And <clears throat> Lewis says this. He says, the queen knew, even though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, that anyone who tasted it once would want more and more of it. And even if they, if they were allowed, they would even go on eating it until they killed themselves. So that is a, an analogy, a, a metaphor, if you will, for the Christian life. It is easy to lose focus on what God has called us to do and get distracted with the Turkish delight of this world. It is easy to find greater pleasure in the stuff of this world than in God himself. And that's what happened with Edmund. It's also what happened with Israel. And that's what's going on when you come to the book of Haggai. You find that God has poured out blessing on his people, Israel. And uh, one of the ways that he's blessed them is even though they had gone into exile in Babylon, graciously God brings them back to the land And he gives them every blessing you can imagine. He provides all the resources that they need. But he gives them a mission. He gives them a task. It's very simple. It's very clear. And that's to rebuild the temple. And they begin to rebuild the temple. But at some point along the line, the Israelites get distracted by the Turkish delight of this world. And they neglect God. They forget all about God. They forget what he's called called them to do. And they begin to instead focus on themselves, and they begin to experience all of the creature comforts that this world has to offer. They begin to build themselves nice homes. They panel their homes, which is just a way of saying that they live luxuriously. And for 16 years, they get distracted. They take their eye off the ball, and they forget about what God has called them to do. And isn't that so easy to do in the Christian life as well? to know that God has given us a purpose, to know that God has given us a mission, to set out on that mission, but somewhere along the way we get a distraction and the Turkish delight of this world becomes more appealing to us than the delight of knowing and serving God. So God loves his people too much to leave them that way. So he sends a prophet named Haggai to come and bring a message. It's a message calling them to repent. It's also a message reminding them of the ways that God has blessed them and their responsibility to be obedient in light of that blessing. And so I want you to see this in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to look at the last section of Haggai, verses 10 through 23, and talk about God's undeserved blessing. So, so this the flow of this text is fairly straightforward, all right? So in verses 10 through 14, Haggai is going to describe what it is the people have done, right? In being distracted from God, In focusing on the Turkish delight of this world, how does God view the situation? What have they done? And then verses 15 through 23, excuse me, 15 through 19, he's going to describe what the people deserve for what they have done. But then verse 19 and following, verses 19 through 23, the text takes a turn, and Haggai describes what God is going to do despite what they deserve, So let's look at the text together. The first thing I want you to see, Haggai just points out, this is what you've done, Israel. Verses 10 through 14, Haggai's going to ask them two questions. They're rhetorical questions, and they are obscure questions for our day and time. In 2023, you'll read these and you'll say, what is this talking about? For the Jewish people of that day, they were very clear questions. They've got a very simple point that I want to to point out to you. Let's look down in verse 10. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, and for those who are keeping score, that's December 18th, 520 B.C., the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says, ask the priests for their opinion. Now, he's going to ask a question in verse 12, question number one. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment, and it happens to touch bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? Come you, you know the answer to that question, right? Well, the priests say, no. Then he asks a second question in verse 13. Then Haggai asked, well... If someone who is defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these same things, does it become defiled? Of course, you know the answer to that question too, don't you? Well, look at what the priests say. They say, well, yeah, it becomes defiled. Here's Haggai's conclusion. Verse 14, then Haggai replied, so is this people defiled. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands, even what they offer there, is what? Defiled. Okay, so what is this all about, right? He asks these two kind of weird questions. Question number one about consecrated meat. He says, what's that talking about? Well, in that day and time, if you were a priest who served God in the temple, one of the ways that you were paid for your service was to receive some of the, the food that was offered at the temple. You could take home with you some of the consecrated meat, Okay call it holy leftovers, all right? So, Haggai says, okay, let's, cons- let's just consider for a moment that a, a priest is t- carrying consecrated food in a fold of his garment, right? Because you don't have doggy bags back in the ancient world. So, you get some consecrated meat, and you stick it in the fold of your garment, you begin to carry it home, and somewhere along on your way home, that consecrated food happens to touch other food, like bread or wine or whatever. His question, does that food become consecrated because it has touched consecrated food. And what do the priests say? No it doesn't. Okay, what's this all about? Here's what he's saying. Just because you touch holy things doesn't make you holy. Holiness is not contagious. What he's trying to communicate here to Israel is Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you happen to be back in the holy land and you happen to be working in the temple and you happen to be around consecrated things, that that makes you holy. It is possible to be around holy things and still be very far from God. Amen? Just because you're involved in religious activities doesn't mean that you're righteous. Just because you're around holy things, in this case, guys saying like consecrated meat, just because you rub up against it, just because you come close to it, doesn't make you holy. You can be involved in religious activity, you can be around holy things, and your heart can still be very far from God. And that's an important thing for us to realize today. Just because you go to church doesn't mean that you, know even, the, that you even know the Lord. You know, my mom used to say, uh, just because you were born in a garage doesn't make you a car. If you were born in a Taco Bell, doesn't make you a burrito. If you were born going to church, doesn't mean that you know the Lord. You might be in and around the things of the Lord. You might be in and around holy things, consecrated things, but your heart can still be very far from God. And that is exactly what was the case with Israel. Here they are returning from exile. They're in the holy land. They're working in the temple. They're, they're, they're elbows deep in holy things but their hearts are still far from God. And that's the point, holiness is not contagious. You can be around holy things, hearts still very far from God. The second question is just the the inverse of that statement. He says, okay, let's imagine that someone touches something that is defiled like a corpse. Does that person who touches that defiled thing, does that person become defiled? And the answer to that question is, of course, yes. Right? You know, in the Old Testament law, if you touch something that's unclean, you become unclean. If you touch a dead corpse, you're unclean. If you touch somebody with leprosy, you're unclean. If you touch something that's defiled, you become defiled. You see, holiness is not contagious, but defilement is. That's the point. So don't, just, don't make the mistake of thinking that just because you're around holy things means that you are close to the Lord. You can be far from the Lord, actually, and be around holy things. But also recognize that defilement is very contagious. <clears throat> you know, if you've ever taken a sack of potatoes and there's a sack of rotten potatoes and you take a good potato and throw it into that sack of rotten potatoes, what, what happens to the good potato? It rots. If you have uh, a sack of good potatoes... And you throw a rotten potato, tomato, potato, potato is the one I'm talking about. You take a rotten potato, you put it into the sack of good potatoes. What happens to the good potatoes? They rot, right? That's his point here. And so he draws this conclusion. Israel, you also are defiled. You are defiled. In the same way that you would look at someone who has touched a dead corpse, and you would say... That person has become defiled. God looks at what you have done in forgetting about him, neglecting him, being distracted from him, and God looks at you the very same way. And he says, You are a defiled people. Every part of you is defiled. Notice what he says right there in the text. He says, You are defiled. This nation is defiled. Every work of their hands is defiled. Even what they offer here, he's referring there to offerings in worship, even your offerings in worship are defiled. And, and by the way, this just elevates the importance of spiritual distraction. We tend to minimize this, right? We look at Israel and we say, oh, they got distracted. They got off task. They forgot the mission for a few years. They built their own houses. Well, it's not that big of a deal. They were just backsliding a little bit. They just need to get back on track. Actually, no, God looks at that and says, no, it's actually defilement. God is elevating the seriousness of spiritual distraction. We tend to minimize it. God says, no, it is as defiling as if someone went and touched a dead corpse. I look at you, my people, as unclean because you have lost focus and you have been distracted and you have given your heart to other things. Ignoring God is no small thing. This is what the people have done. So what do they deserve? for what they've done. Well, look at verses 15 through 19. He says, now from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When when someone came to a grain heap of 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. And when one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. So, from this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The wine, the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yet produced. So, what's he talking about here? Here, right? So, This is what you've done. You have ignored me and you have been defiled. This is now what you deserve. Three times he tells them in this paragraph, think carefully. You'll remember he says this twice in Haggai chapter 1. So five times in two chapters he says, think carefully. What he's saying is consider your ways. You have ignored me. You have gotten distracted from me. You have given yourselves to the Turkish delight of this world. And forgotten all about my mission. How has that gone for you? Think carefully about it. Consider your ways. This focus on yourself, where you are the center of your own universe, has that brought you the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment that you thought it would? That's what he's telling them. You thought that by ignoring me and pouring out your life into all of these other things that that would bring you happiness? Has it really brought you what you thought it would bring you? That's the question here in verses 15 through 19. Being the center of our world may sound like the easiest, fastest path to satisfaction, but folks, it will not satisfy. When you are the center of your own world, you will find that that is a road to nowhere. Amen? God has to be the center and the source of our joy. God is the fountain of all satisfaction, and what he's saying here, Haggai is saying to the people, you have given yourself to these other things, and it hasn't brought you what you thought it would bring you. No, instead, when you came to the harvest, verse 16, you expected to harvest 20 measures, but it only amounted to what? What does it say there in the text? Anybody awake this morning? Ten. You came to the wine press... All right now that's proof that Haggai's not a Baptist. You came, you came to the wine press, you expected 50 measures from the vat, and what did you actually get? What does it say there? 20, right? So you, you've poured your life into all these other things, seeking happiness apart from God, expecting for it to produce for you, and God says, it hasn't produced, has it? It hasn't brought to you what you thought it would bring to you. Instead, God says, I, I struck you with mildew, blight and hail because you turned from me, and even then you didn't turn from me. I uh, didn't turn to me. But what God is simply saying here is: <clears throat> you thought you could be happy without me. And so I, I am bringing to nothing that which you gave yourself to. You thought that by ignoring me and giving yourself to all of these other things, it would bring you something that it really can't bring. And so I've judged the work of your hands. I have brought it to nothing, which listen, that is both a judgment of God and a mercy of God. It's God saying, when you give yourself to something other than me, you will get what you deserve, and that is judgment. But that is a mercy for God to show us how those things won't satisfy us. So put this together, right? The first step here in the text is, you are defiled. You've ignored me. And God looks at that as being totally defiled. The second step is to say, and this is what you deserve for that. You deserve God's judgment, right? To use New Testament language, we would say it this way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Who are we? What have we done? We are sinners who have ignored God. What do we deserve for that? We deserve death and judgment. That's what's happening up to verse 19. Everybody with me? Let me tell you, the story doesn't end there. And I'm so thankful it doesn't. He says, listen, you've ignored me. I've poured out blessing on you. You've squandered that blessing. You've ignored me. I look at that as defilement. What you really deserve is blight and mildew and hail. That's what you deserve. But notice the turn in verse 19, because verse 19 is where God says, I'm going to give to you what you don't deserve. This is what I'm going to do for you. You have been defiled. You have forgotten all about me, and you deserve nothing but judgment and death. But instead, this is what I'm going to do for you. I am going to bless you. So look at verse 19. This is what God is going to do. Verse 19, he says, But from this day on... What does it say right there in the text? I will bless you. If you say, I don't believe there's grace in the Old Testament, look at verse 19. That's God's grace to His people. It's God saying, you are a defiled people who have forgotten all about me. What you deserve for your sin is judgment. And yet, even though that's what you deserve, I am still going to give you undeserved blessing. I am still going to pour out my grace upon you. I still have a plan for you. I am going to be faithful to you, even though you've been unfaithful to me. Even though you've forgotten about me, I'm not going to forget about you. Even though I could just totally judge you for what you've done, instead, I'm going to pour out blessing upon you. Folks, that is who God is. He is a God of grace He is a God who gives us undeserved blessing when we don't deserve it at all. Here in the text, he's saying, even though you deserve nothing but judgment, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. From this day on, I will bless you. I love this word of contrast. This is who you are, and this is what you deserve. But aren't you thankful for that? We all know the relief. When you're driving down the road, you're speeding, and a police officer pulls you over. Hypothetically. And you know, he caught you, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm guilty of sin here. I have been speeding and I deserve a speeding ticket. But we all know the relief when that police officer comes to the, to the, the window and he says, you know, you do an X number of miles over the speed limit. That, uh, that's what you deserve. But this time, I'm going to let you off with a warning. And we just start speaking in tongues in the car. We're just thankful, you know, like... I deserved the ticket. Instead, I got something I didn't deserve. That's what's happening in verse 19. Listen, let me define for you mercy and grace. Mercy is God keeping from us what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. What do we deserve, right? All have sin, Falls short of the glory of God. We're sinners, right? Wages of sin is death. So what do we deserve? death. We deserve the judgment of God. Mercy is God keeping from us what we deserve. You don't want what you deserve. Mercy is God saying, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. You deserve death and judgment. He's not going to give us that through Christ. He's going to give us life and blessing. Amen. Amen? So verse 19, I will bless you. Well, What shape will that blessing take? Well, that's what verses 20 through 23 are all about. Here's how I'm going to bless you, okay? And there's two things I want you to notice. Number one, God tells His people, I will bless you by overthrowing every rival power that threatens my people, The first way that God blesses his people, Israel, is by overthrowing every rival power. Look at verses 20 through 22. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. I'm gonna shake the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's apocalyptic imagery. He has repeated this now three times in chapter two. I will shake the heavens and the earth. And I will overturn royal thrones. That is vivid imagery. God says, I'm going to come to these rival powers. And just like Jesus in the temple where he flips the tables, God says, I'm going to flip the thrones. I'm going to overturn them. And I will destroy the power of Gentile kingdoms And I will overturn chariots and their riders. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. This ought to recall in your mind uh, the story of the Exodus, right? God's people running from the Egyptians. And here's an enemy army and a foreign rival power that's pursuing his people. And yet God graciously makes a way through the Red Sea. And the chariots and the riders of Egypt come. And what does God do? He turns the Red Sea over them. He overturns chariots and riders. God is recalling that. For the people here, he's saying, listen, in the same way that I delivered my people out of the lion's mouth in Egypt, I will once again overturn every rival throne, every rival kingdom. I will fight your battles for you. I will conquer your enemies for you. And folks, that is how God blesses his people. God blesses his people by overthrowing every rival power that threatens us. And he always has, whether it's Moses and Egypt or David and the Philistines. Think about the story of the Philistines where you've got a a giant named Goliath who is absolutely terrorizing God's people. They're all fearful. They can't fight their battles for themselves. And so what does God do? He raises up a young warrior who will go in front of them, stand in their place, and fight their battle for them on their behalf. Doesn't that have gospel echoes? It points us forward to another young warrior who would come and fight our battles for us. And God uses King David to overturn the Philistines. And and he's done it all throughout history, whether it's the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, or the Persian Empire, or the Greek Empire, or the Roman Empire. God throughout biblical history has protected his people and overthrown all of the enemies who come up against them. And by the way, that's not limited to just biblical history. Think about church history. Think about all of the rival powers that have sought to dominate the church. Think about all of the the enemy kingdoms that have sought to crush and stamp out the people of God and how God has preserved his people for 2,000 years. I wish I had time to just recount all of the ways that that has happened. Let me share with you one of the stories. The French skeptic Voltaire, an atheist, hated Christians, hated the Bible predicted that within 100 years of his own life that no one would even know about the Bible. So nobody's going to know Jesus. Nobody's going to remember Christianity. There won't be any Bibles within 100 years of my life. You know what happened? Voltaire died. And within 50 years, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's home and used it to open a printing press for the Bibles. God will overthrow every rival power. You know that there are rival powers against the people of God today in places like China and in Cuba where God's people are persecuted. But do you know that some of the fastest growing church planting movements anywhere in the world today are happening in China and in Cuba? By the way, God will do this in the future as well. In fact, Haggai chapter 2 reappears in your New Testament in the book of Hebrews and chapter 12 where the author of Hebrews says, there is coming a day when God will shake the heavens and the earth and every cre- kingdom will be brought to its knees, but we will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what the book of Revelation is about, folks. It's not about like Apache helicopters and all the weird left behind stuff. Okay, That's not what it's about. It's a story, a tale of two cities, Babylon which is representative of all the rival kingdoms of this world and the new Jerusalem. And the story of Revelation is that Babylon will fall and the kingdom of Christ will be consummated. That every rival power will be brought to its knees and our God will reign forever. That's how God blesses his people. Okay, one final blessing. He'll overthrow every rival power. Number two, he will establish a special anointed ruler for his people. Not only is he going to throw, overthrow all of the other rulers, he's going to raise up a special anointed ruler for his people. Look what he says in verse 23. On that day, this is the de- declaration of the Lord of armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel. That's the governor. I will take you, my servant, this is the Lord's declaration, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So what is, what is God telling his people here? He's saying, not only am I going to overthrow rival thrones, but I'm going to raise up a special anointed leader named Zerubbabel. Now, there are a couple of things happening here, okay? Just look at the language that's used here. He's, he calls Zerubbabel the governor at the time. He calls him my servant. He says, I'll make him like my signet ring, for I have chosen him. Okay, so this is one who is God's servant, God's signet ring, and God's chosen one. Signet ring, by the way, uh, was a symbol of a king's authority. What's happening here? Well, there's two things that are happening. Number one, God is renewing a promise that he made to King David, If you rewind in the story of Israel and go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, look it up later. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David that one of his descendants will rule over his people, Israel, forever. And that became the hope of Israel for centuries. Israel started looking for a son of David who would come to reign. And the question was, well, who who is that going to be? And the prime candidate was Solomon, David's actual son. And Solomon was like a number one draft pick to be, you know, the one who reigns. He's the wisest man who ever lives. He's the wealthiest man who ever lives. But but what does Solomon do with all of that undeserved blessing? He squanders it just like Israel. And then it goes from bad to worse. If you just read about Israel's kings, it's like it, it goes from thud to dud. You know, it is just awful. One bad king after the other, so much so that the kingdom eventually divides with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And then God brings his people into exile, and they have no king. So the promise that God made to David is now in serious jeopardy. Who is, who's going to rule over my people? What about that son of David that God promised? Until Haggai chapter 2. And God says, you th- oh, you think I forgot about that promise I made? <laughs> no, I've not forgotten. I made a promise to David, and I'm going to renew it to Zerubbabel. I'm going to restore that Davidic line, and there will be a son of David who rules over my people. And for a time, that was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, like a signet ring, a chosen servant reigned over Israel for a period of time. But folks, that is not the end of the story. Because there would be another who would come like Zerubbabel, who would rule over his people as God's servant, as the representative of God's authority, as God's chosen one, who would reign over his people like Zerubbabel, but as a greater Zerubbabel. And it was actually a descendant of Zerubbabel. His name was Jesus. You know, Zerubbabel is a weird name. You may never have read it before in your Bibles, but actually it shows back up in your New Testament. In fact, it shows up on the first page of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, which is a, a family tree of Jesus, a genealogy. We love those, right? They're actually really important. Those names in there really matter. You know, one of the names in the family tree is Zerubbabel, and his descendant is our Lord Jesus Christ who Matthew identifies as the son of David. You see, what God is doing in Haggai chapter two is reminding his people that he's not forgotten about his promise to raise up a special anointed ruler who would reign over his people forever and ever. And this is how God brings undeserved blessing to his people. This is how God overthrows rival kings. By bringing his own special king named Jesus, who will one day rule over all the earth. One day, church, we will see the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. Look at this on the screen. Revelation eleven fifteen, 15, it says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of, of who? Of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign for how long? Forever and ever. So you can take your Bibles and you can draw a straight line from Haggai to Jesus. Amen? And Jesus is the one who brings undeserved blessing to his people as he reigns over the nations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Now that's the book of Haggai. I want to pivot here for just a few moments. And I want to talk with you about something that's specific to Moberly, and it has to do with actually how the Lord has blessed us. See, God pours out undeserved blessing on Israel, and the Israelites squandered that blessing. And the Lord has blessed us as well in some unique ways. Amen? Amen. The Lord has blessed Moberly in very unique ways. We do not want to be like Israel that squanders those blessings. And so I want to talk with you just for a few moments about how to steward our blessings in a way that honors the Lord. You know, Genesis chapter 12 teaches us a very important principle, and that is when we receive undeserved blessing, when we receive blessing, it is never intended to just stay with us. God always blesses us in order for us to be a blessing. If you look on the screen, you'll see Genesis chapter 12 and verse 2. God says to Abraham, I will bless you. And what does it say there? You will be a blessing. So God always blesses us and stewards us with blessing. He entrusts it to us, but he always expects for us to inside out our blessings. We're blessed in order to be a blessing for others. We're to hold our blessings open-handed. God, you've given us blessing. Now, how can we bless others? How can we be an agent of blessing to the people around us? That's what he called Israel to do. It's also what he calls us to do. I want to talk with you about a couple of unique blessings, ways that God has blessed Mauberly, that I want to lead us to steward in a particular way so that we can be an agent of blessing to other people. One of the unique ways that God has blessed Mauberly is he has blessed us with the Hope Road Counseling Center. Hope Road is a therapeutic Christ-centered counseling center that was started in 2018 as a ministry of Mauberly Baptist Church. And since 2018, God has blessed that ministry in ways that no one could have anticipated at the time. In fact, in the last four years, uh, Hope Road counselors have seen over 3,000 clients. Last year alone, they had over 8,000 sessions. It's amazing. And God is using Hope Road as an agent of blessing in the East Texas community. So that's one unique way that God has blessed us. Another unique way that God has blessed us is with our church campus. We have a 140-acre campus. You may not have known that, but if you go, uh, for instance, uh, out behind uh, the building, behind the parking lot, we have nearly 90 acres that the Lord brought to us over a decade ago of just pristine East Texas land. There's a lake, there's pine trees. It's absolutely beautiful. And that's a very unique resource. I mean, there are not a handful of churches in America that have that kind of resource. But God has brought to Moberly all of this land and also a Hope Road counseling center. And so how do we steward that well? How can we steward those blessings in a way that can bless other people? Well, I want to to share with you this morning a plan to steward those blessings in such a way that we can bless many, many other people. I want to share with you this morning for a few moments about the Oasis Project The Oasis Project is a plan that I have been working with our staff and with church leadership on for several months now. The Oasis Project is a plan to use our resources to build an oasis on our land that will serve people who are hurting, people who need rest, people who are discouraged, people who need help, healing, and encouragement. And the Oasis Project involves three Phases. It's a three-phase plan to develop a refuge, a, a haven, if you will, where we can minister to and serve people who need it. Phase one involves the construction of a building for our Hope Road Counseling Center on our land. Hope Road, uh, we have over 15 employees, and they happen to office just down the street. They lease a space. It is a shoebox, And they have stewarded that as well as they can. They manage that thing, and it is a juggling act to try to accommodate the number of people who come in for care in that small space. And they are out of space, and that's a a blessing. It means that God has really used this ministry But we need to provide a space so that Hope Road can continue to provide care for people all over East Texas. And so we're proposing that we build a facility for Hope Road right here at Moberly so that they can continue to to minister to people all over East Texas. And our planning and building committee has worked for the last couple of years to develop plans for this building. The estimated cost right now is $2.5 million dollars. And I'll say another word about that in just a moment. But that's phase one, is to build a building for our Hope Road Counseling Center. Phase two is to construct several cabins on our land so that we can be a place that shows hospitality to people who are worn out and burnt out and who need care and encouragement and rest and refreshing. And I think about several kinds of people that we can host here if we have a space to host them. I think about pastors and their families who are burnt out and ready to quit, maybe hanging on by a thread. And I envision Moberly being a place where we can take a pastor and his family, his wife and children, and fly them down to East Texas and put them in a cabin and just spend a week loving on them. Let the kids paddleboard and fish out on the lake. Let the wife have all the gift cards to go shopping. Let the husband and the wife go to Hope Road, which is just a, will be a stone's throw away from a cabin. Go down to Hope Road and see a counselor and receive the care that they need. And can you imagine what it would look like for us to host pastor after pastor over the course of months and years and just be an agent of blessing to those pastors where they go back to their church refreshed and recharged and they continue faithfully in ministry. I think about missionaries who come home on furlough and they're exhausted and they just need a place to rest. And we can accommodate that. We can host them host them, and just be an agent of blessing and encouragement in their life. And they can see a Hope Road counselor and then they can go back to their mission field. Think about the countless number of pastors and missionaries, other ministers and their church families and the mission fields that they serve. Think about the countless blessing that God could use Moberly to be to all of those different families and those communities that they serve. I think about married couples that are in crisis. And maybe you would hear about a married couple you just say, man, if they could just get away for a little bit and and have a place where they can pull back and rest and be encouraged, we could be a place to host married couples to just provide a haven for a few days where they could rest, be together and see a Hope Road counselor. And so phase two involves the construction of several cabins. Estimated cost for those is $500,000. And then phase three is a longer term uh, aspect of this plan. This is something our planning and building committee has been working on for a long time in terms of the long-range uh, plan for our, for our land. But uh, the, the idea here is that we would build a chapel in the woods and a conference center. And that's a little bit further out, but the idea is that this would be a multi-use facility that we can use for weddings, that we can use for funerals, special worship services, but we could also use to invite other church staffs, other ministry teams to come and draw away and come to East Texas and and have a staff planning retreat to stay with us, to see a Hope Road counselor who could do a spiritual formation group, to have a conference center and a chapel where they can work and they can worship and they can plan. And so once again, this would be a way that we can inside out our blessings and use what the Lord has entrusted us to serve and provide a place for people to be, to be blessed and ministered to. Listen, there would be ways that we could use these blessings just for ourselves. We could say, oh, we've got a counseling center, that's great. It's only for Moberly members. Or we could say, hey, we've got a 140-acre campus with a beautiful lake and hiking, biking trails, all this stuff, but it's only for Moberly members. And that would be taking blessing from God and just turning in on ourselves. But folks, that is not the heartbeat of our church, amen? amen. The heartbeat of our church is to inside out those blessings. We have been blessed. We wanna steward those blessings in a way that we can bless other people. And so this is what I really believe the Lord is calling us to do. And I've been sharing this with certain key groups in our church who've been entrusted by our church with leadership, various committees and so forth. But I wanted to have a chance to share that with you today. And it's not an accident we're landing on Haggai chapter 2 and we're thinking about the fact that God has just blessed us in an undeserved way. And I want to just encourage us to think God has undeservedly blessed us. How can we use that to bless other people? As I've been sharing this plan behind the scenes, it has been met with great enthusiasm. I want to tell you that our church leadership council has voted unanimously to affirm this direction. Our finance committee has voted unanimously to affirm this direction. Our planning and building committee has voted unanimously to affirm this direction. Our deacon body, can you imagine a hundred Baptist deacons being unanimous on something? Our deacon body unanimously voted to affirm this direction. That just tells you about the unity of our church and the unity of our deacon body, which I am so thankful for those men. But all of these different groups have seen this, heard this, and they have said, yes, we believe that this is what the Lord is calling us to do. Beyond that, the finance committee has made a recommendation that we take $875,000 from our surplus giving and use that as a major lead gift for phase one of the Oasis project, which is the construction of the Hope Road building. And so that's one of the things that we will vote on next Sunday night. I'm bringing this to you to, to ask you, would you affirm this direction? Would you say, yes, we believe this would be a God-honoring way to steward the resources the Lord has entrusted to us. If you feel that way, I want to just simply put that in front of you and ask you to vote on it next Sunday night. And then as a first step to say, we will take the Finance Committee's recommendation and we will put $875,000 as a major lead gift towards this project. Let me just give you one more piece of good news. As I've begun to share this privately, this plan, God has already been stirring on people's hearts to give, and in fact, in an overwhelming way. And I just want to share with you that since the last Tuesday of November, people, before I have even put this out there publicly, people have given $1,047,810 towards this. And that does not include the $875,000. So if you vote to affirm this, then by next Sunday night, we would have over $1.9 million cash in hand for the first phase of this project. I think the Lord is honoring this and blessing and providing. And so what's next? Well, let me just tell you a couple of things. As you leave today... You'll receive a brochure that looks like this. It's called the Oasis Project. It will give you some more details. It'll give you some floor plans and some information where you can find out more about this. You can also go to moberly.org slash Oasis or scan that QR code. It'll take you right there to give you some information about that. This Wednesday night in the crossing at 5.30, we will have a town hall. So if you have any questions about this, you can come. There will be several individuals there who can answer your questions about the Oasis Project. That's this Wednesday. And then Sunday night, next Sunday night, 4 p.m., come back here into the worship center, and I'm going to ask you to do two things. I'm going to ask you to vote uh, on the Oasis Project as a whole. Do you believe that this would be a a wise, God-honoring way to steward our blessings? And then secondly, if you believe that, would you take the first step of of designating that $875,000 towards that? Beyond that... Let me just tell you, if you say, boy, the Lord is just stirring even in my own heart right now an excitement about this, just this vision that Moberly could be a place where pastors and ministers or missionaries are rescued, you can give now. Um, there are pathways online on our website. You can find them in the brochure about how to give. I believe the Lord is going to supply for our need above and beyond. We are very, very close to that initial goal. And so, if the Lord is moving on your heart, I invite you to give and to give now to participate financially to provide for this and then to pray. Pray, pray about this. Pray about how God might use you to participate in this, how God might lay it on your heart to give towards this. Pray for God's provision for this and pray that God would use us as we seek to steward. Those blessings in a way that blesses others. Pray that God would use Moberly to be a place that's a haven and a refuge and an oasis for people. Amen? Amen. Let me just challenge you as we as we close this morning. I want to challenge you this week to go prayer walk on the land. You can go by yourself, you can take your spouse, you can take your children, you can go with a friend. But just if you have not been back there for a while, just go walk around, walk around the lake and just envision what the Lord might do here. And just pray. And then you come next Sunday, and we'll begin to move forward. So I'm going to invite you to stand now, and I want to pray even in this moment for this. And we're going to sing one final song of worship. But let's bow together and join our hearts in prayer before the Lord. Lord, we are just so aware of the ways that you've blessed us. You've blessed us in Christ. You've blessed us uh, as a church in an undeserved way. Lord, we seek to just be faithful with those things. We don't want to use our blessings just on ourselves. We want to bless others. So Lord, we just submit to you. We surrender all of our plans to you and ask you to to work in and through us. Holy Spirit, move in this place all for your glory. And we say this in Jesus' name, amen.